And interesting how it all sort of fits together with, uh, you know, all the topics and all the speakers all seem like they have this uh, interrelation going back and forth. And uh, and I think to sum it up, we have Rich Roth. He's the director of materials uh, systems laboratory here at MIT. Rich is uh, a, heads up a research group at MIT that studies strategic implica- implications of materials and material processing choices. Um, so you're gonna you're gonna wrap this up for us. You're gonna give us an idea of what it is. And again, what we're gonna do uh, once um, once Rich finishes, we're gonna take maybe a five minute uh, bio break, uh, set our ta- set our uh, uh, director's chairs back up, and then we'll do a Q and A. Okay, it's all yours. Thank you, John Paul, and um, thank you everyone for coming, and thank you, Paul, for inviting me to come and represent MIT at this meeting. Um, What I want to do today is talk about some of the economics that surround vehicle lightweighting questions. And it will build a lot on unplanned, but on what Charlie had told you about what goes on in making a car and making all these choices. And not by accident, we've um, a little more about my group. The Material System Lab looks at developing analysis and tools that will help people make materials choice decision. And we do that from an economic and an environmental or non-economic standpoint. Um, Today, I will focus on the economic side, although from the environmental side, as Jody pointed out, um, we are strong advocates of a life cycle assessment approach where environmental analysis should include everything from the mining and refining of materials up through the manufacturer use and final disposal of the vehicle. But today, we're going to talk about the economics associated Um, the economic choices that come along with um, making a material selection decision or multiple material selection decision in a car. And rather than tell you results or answers, um, what I really want to do is just present the many complex pieces that you need to consider and try to kind of broaden everyone's thinking to have a more holistic and complete view when doing this analysis. Um, The first thing I want to talk about is it's not just a simple decision of I'm going to choose this steel or this aluminum or this one material for this car. The context matters. What kind of vehicle am I talking about? Are these high volume, low volume um, vehicles? Am I making hundreds of thousands of year, in which case I've got to make parts every few seconds and put together an entire vehicle every minute? Or are these more niche vehicles that I'm making 10 or 20,000 a year? and I can take longer times to do productions. Are these small cars, are they big cars? Do they have to tow a lot of of capacity and do they need the engines that can pull a lot of extra weight besides what they pull? Which decision you make on the material will depend on what the context for the vehicle that you're doing. I think we heard from several people from um, NanoSteel about the fact that while there's a universe of materials that one could theoretically choose from, in reality, we've really come down to four or five major classes of materials as candidates. Steel being the, um, the main competitor, the main material we see in most vehicles, with some introduction of aluminum, increasing amounts of aluminum. In fact, some all or predominantly aluminum vehicles attempting to come into this space. We see some magnesium. Now, no one's talking about a fully magnesium body, but there are opportunities for an aluminum-magnesium combination or even just within a steel vehicle use of magnesium in key components. And then finally, there's tons of talk about composites. Can I make a a fiber-reinforced plastic 
composite body structure? How far can I push that? And how much is that carbon fiber? And all the wondrous things we hear about the strength and properties that come with carbon fiber, what would that do for the vehicle? When we think about each of these materials, we really have to think about a whole bunch of processing that's going to go on. There is, first of all, the processing of those materials into parts. I have hundreds of parts. There's probably on the body on the order of 300, two to 300 major parts and a few hundred more minor parts in the body that's in a steel body. Um, each of those parts have to be made. Largely, they're sheet structures when they're done in steel and made by stamping. If I switch to another material, is it still appropriate to stamp it? Am I casting? Am I molding? Am I extruding? Obviously, all of those things have different economic consequences. Finally, you know, we can't end the discussion just at making the parts. And as Charlie pointed out, assembly is a giant issue. Most of modern automotive manufacturing assembly has been done around the steel spot weld. It's great to hear that they are now in a, uh, able to do an aluminum steel spot weld. There's adhesive bonding, there's riveting, there's a host of other methods um, that could be used whether you're switching to aluminum or even going all the way to composite, which method depends on which material. But each of those methods mean not only an upfront investment in changing your automotive plant, but they also carry ongoing cost consequences. And one has to think about whether those are worth it. Finally, even once you've built up the body structure, there are issues beyond that. And the most obvious one to people, and next it happens kind of sequentially in the automotive factory, is paint. Um, again, automotive paint shops are set up around the idea of painting steel. They can accommodate aluminum. Um, but it takes some work to accommodate aluminum. As I move to composites or move to other metals, I have to think about what I'm going to do about paint. How will I accommodate them? Or maybe my whole paint paradigm will switch. Will that cost me a lot of investment? And will it cost me a lot of ongoing costs? So I want to talk to you about each of these major kind of points today. To summarize them, we have the materials themselves. Steel is uh, effectively a mass-produced, very high volume, very cost-effective material, and it's why we see steel in so many cars. As soon as you start talking about aluminum or eventually go all the way to carbon fiber, you have an upfront cost on the material basis in dollars per pound that's increasing on you. But that is by no means the whole story. You can't just look at the price of steel and the price of aluminum and say, I want to go with steel. There are the costs of making the parts, assembling them, painting and coating. And I did hear some questions at lunch about the idea of galvanic corrosion and putting steel and aluminum in proximity. The problem's even worse with magnesium. So am I going to have to do part by part coatings on all of the parts? And what's that going to add to my cost? Then a topic that's become very important in recent years is the idea of the impact of, the, of this light weighting on the remainder of the vehicle. And Charlie alluded to this. And in fact, we've done a study with GM that I found out that Charlie was actually involved with in, in some level on this idea of secondary mass savings or mass decompounding. As I take mass out of the structure, I could take mass out of something else, out of the brakes, out of the motor. In the past, that has had some significant importance, but as we move to electric vehicles, where batteries and traction motors become more important, this provides potentially opportunities that light weighting begets more light weighting and eventually causes this virtuous cycle to reduce cost. 
Finally, a thing that people don't think about, although I have heard a little mention of today, was the idea of kind of impacts beyond a single vehicle. And this comes in a couple of flavors, platforming and decisions across whole broad categories of vehicles. I don't independently design every vehicle as if I'm doing it from scratch. The cost would be outrageous. And so I do platforming. How does having so many different materials affect that? And also the idea of um, multi-vehicle manufacturing in the same plant. If a single assembly plant is geared toward making two or three or four variants of vehicles, sometimes completely different vehicles, how will having more diverse materials affect those plants? Will they no longer be able to make the diverse set or will we have to have some redundancy? What will the cost on not just my vehicle but the whole fleet? And then finally, I think everyone's aware of operating costs. I make it lighter, it costs less to fuel, I have to think about um, the use phase of the vehicle. There are also, I think, numerous people talked about, um, I think Jody talked about um, maintenance and repairability issues. I probably won't touch too much on that, but I just want people to kind of be aware of the whole suite of costs. Decision's not about just one of these. So let's start with materials. You know, the, in some ways, the simple, the naive way to do the analysis would be to look at the unit cost of materials, maybe do some adjustments based on the amount of materials that you need and some scrap rates and um, pick a material. And, and that's probably a good place to start. And I wanted to just show you some of these things. And these are very rough ranges of numbers. The daily price changes with market and specific grades and um, but, you know, if you look at kind of the ordering of cost of materials, and I just talk about steel, aluminum, magnesium, and carbon fiber, you're obviously, as you go to these kind of lighter weight materials, you're going to more expensive materials. Hopefully, they're paying for themselves in some way through reduced cost of manufacturing, reduced use of the material, or um, just getting a lighter car that you can eventually go to. Um, and then there's the densities, roughly, that go along with those. Um, so you can see the light weighting order. Um, mechanical performance, as Jody and uh, NanoSteel and others have pointed out, what do you get from these materials? And so here I just listed, I think I wrote tensile strength, but it, it, as I think about it, it's probably a mix of tensile and yield strengths on these. So don't quote the exact numbers, but you get the orders. And Jody show, um, showed this same progression, going from mild steel as, as the steel industry has developed, higher strength steels, advanced high strength steels, they've moved up on what you could get from the material. Um, aluminum just does not offer that same strength, but it is considerably less dense. Um, and then finally, as you move up to carbon fiber, you could get some pretty amazing strengths depending on how you make the composite. And so, you know, there's a whole bunch of trade-offs here. And what I really wanted kind of to point out here, you could kind of imagine that the strength dictates how much volume of the material you need, and then the density converts that to how much mass of the material, and then the unit cost into how much you're paying for all of that material. And so depending on the design, it, in some ways it's a trade-off between these items. But not just that. Each of these items have to be processed into making parts. And the processes are quite different. Right? And even if you don't consider the cost of the process, the processes have engineering scrap considerations. That 
if you were to make a stamped sheet part, whether it's steel, aluminum, magnesium, you're gonna have a, a large amount of engineering scrap. Picture the, um, the, what's the body side outer of a car or the kind of door openings. You have this big sheet and all the middles of it, you were potentially throwing away. Of course, you don't throw it away. You reclaim the credit for that material. You sell it, you reuse it, but not at the initial value of the material. And there are clever ways around that in some cases. You could use a tailor-welded blank system so you're not cutting out the entire middle, or you could design a nested blank where you're using the middle. But inevitably, when stamping a vehicle, you're gonna get on the order of 40, 50, 55% engineered scrap in a sheet metal product. The beauty if you could use, go to near net shape processing like casting is you would reduce that scrap dramatically. And for casting, it's probably on the order in the 20-ish percent due to the runners that you're gonna have to cut off. Again, you're gonna reuse that and get credit for that material. Or extrusion, but that only makes very simple parts where you're really just having little end cuts. And so all of these are things to think about. On top of this, and you know, this list could go on and on of different material properties and also different issues of cost, different scrap price, different reusability um, factors. Jody talked about steel being highly recyclable and easy to recycle. Aluminum is highly recyclable, but requires more care in handling the materials. Carbon fiber is very challenging to recycle. And so you really have to think about, even beyond the environmental cost of that, what's the economic cost of throwing away that much material? Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about were the manufacturing costs and a few key factors here. And again, these are very approximate ranges just to give you a notion of what things, what it takes to do some of these processes. So first, on manufacturing parts, you could think of cycle times as a key factor. How quick can I make each part? So stamping parts, whether it's steel or aluminum, is very fast. Boom, boom, boom. You put in a blank. You hit it between a few dies. It's totally simple, right, Jody? <laughs> and you get out parts. And you can, depending on how complex they are, it could be a couple seconds. It's probably more like 10 seconds for many of the major parts. If you move to parts with reduced formability, whether they're some of the higher strength steels, but not Jody's new super advanced ones, or aluminum, you're gonna slow down the process, it's gonna take you longer. Why does that matter? Well, that time tells you how well you're utilizing your labor and your capital and how much of that you're going to need to make all of these basket of parts. If you move to many of these other processes, you have longer and longer and longer cycle times, which means that for high volume vehicles, you'll need many production lines. But at low volumes, you may be just fine. So which niche, which market are you gonna be in will determine which ones of these are reasonable. You also have investments to figure out. Now there's a reason stamping is so fast and that's because we've spent a lot of time creating the investment around stamping, large presses, large force, large tools that can pound out parts very rapidly, but they cost a lot of money. And so they're only really justified if you have high volumes. While if you're talking about casting or molding, you're talking about smaller presses, smaller machines, lower tool costs, lower investments, but much, much longer per part. 
And so again, this trade-off. You also have things about the life of the equipment, the energy associated with the equipment, many other things that go along with this. Um, I think I've probably belabored the point, um, but you get the idea that depending on your volume and your context and what you're making, which one, the economics of making parts from the different materials will be very different. It's not just that steel costs less to buy, it may cost less to process. Now, you get to the next step of the operation, which is my goal wasn't to make parts, it was to make bodies and eventually to make cars. So when I make bodies, I have to think of the next thing, which is how do I join all these parts together and eventually paint them? First, I have coatings. Now, generally, when I put together a steel car, I've bought coated steel. It's galvanized, it's coated by the steel maker. I pay a small premium for that coating and it's done on the coil. And then I work with that metal and it keeps its corrosion protection. When I go to something like magnesium, I'm going to need coatings even on the parts after they're formed. And that means that not just do I buy magnesium sheet that has some protective coating on, but once I do forming, I have to do another coating step. Now, again, that cost needs to be considered. Finally, when we get to assembly, we've heard again from Charlie, many methods, much complexity, what can fit in our existing assembly method, what uses kind of resistance spot welding, and um, when do I have to think about single-sided methods? If I'm using a sheet, imagine that if you take two sheets and put them together, you can just do a spot weld right around them. If I take three-dimensional parts with thick sections, I may not be able to do a weld around them. I may have to just have one-sided approaches to joining, a self-piercing rivet or an adhesive. All of those have economic consequence to them. And then finally, painting and coating, which is always a subject of a lot of debate. Um, there is an inherent advantage of steel that comes with being the incumbent. My paint shops at all the automakers are set up around steel. Had they been set up around something else, those materials may, may have had an advantage. But because the e-coat part of the process is based on steel, I have to treat everything else in some way to get it to either behave like steel or to skip that step. Now, on the other hand, one could think kind of clean sheet. If I were building a plant from scratch, would I even build a paint shop the way the automaker builds a paint shop today? A paint shop is a $500 million or more investment. It's a supremely expensive operation that we do. Customers want painted cars. They don't want dull plastic cars and they don't want kind of unfinished metal cars. Um, we painted because for steel we needed to paint for protection and now consumers have grown to expect it and there's a question of would future consumers always expect that or is that something I can forego? If I can't forego it then how do I adapt to it? Continuing um, kind of down the, this stretch, I really want to talk about this secondary mass savings or decompounding idea. Um, you know, for years I've worked, we probably started projects with GM in the late 90s and through the 2000s developed many cost models. Um, we've done this with Ford, we've done it with the steel industry through their ultralight steel body programs and with um, Novellus and Alcan. 
And you know, for years we were always fighting this kind of lightweighting headwind that okay, yeah, you could take a few some twenty percent of kilos or forty percent of kilos out of the body, but it costs you so much, and is it really worth it? And we've made extended arguments. Hey, well, if you take this weight out, you can take weight out of the suspension, and you could take weight out of some other components. But it, the math never quite added up to enough other weight and costs out to justify it until advanced vehicles and propulsion systems came along. And at that point, we thought we're sunk. The automakers now, all they're going to care about are propulsion systems. They're going to spend all their environmental effort on better propulsion systems. No one's going to care about lightweighting. Well, the truth was actually the opposite happened, which was that the propulsion systems themselves started to get so expensive and so scalable with the weight of the vehicle that the more weight I take out of the body, the smaller I can make the battery. And the smaller I can make the battery, there's a lot of not just packaging and other benefits there, but there's economic benefit there. The battery cost scales very proportionally with the uh, size of that battery. And so even if I spend a few hundred extra dollars on the body, which in the past uh, automakers said, sorry, we're not going to have a $1,000 body go up to $1,500. That's not possible. Now they're potentially saying, well, $500 more on the body is not so bad if I can now save 500 or a lot more dollars on a downsized battery. Or if it enables me to do an electric vehicle at all because this body now makes the range possible. And so all of a sudden we found that um, lightweighting, instead of being not the favored approach, has become much more in the highlight because not that I want I'm willing to spend the money for the lightweighting self, but the investment in lightweighting saves me so much money elsewhere. The other thing I mentioned was this issue beyond the vehicle. And we've done a lot of projects looking at the manufacturing of just a single body structure. But as it turns out, the automakers rarely make a single body structure in a single line. That a line to manage their own volume um, fluctuations, and you don't know when you launch a vehicle which one is going to take off and have giant excess demand and which ones are going to do worse than expected. You want your lines to be flexible, and so the assembly plants are all able to make numerous of these vehicles. Does that mean I'm going to have to change all the vehicles made in a plant to a new architecture and a new material at the same time? Or do I have to make my line able to handle multiple materials? And this is challenging for them. And again, it's one of these factors that continues to favor the incumbent and needs to be thought about when we're going to make the switch to some other material. Um, there are other things, carryover parts. So I like to think of that as, you know, um, the automakers have both inter, um, inter and intratemporal decisions to make. Um, not only do I have to think about the different cars going into a different factory, but I have to think about the next generation of a car. I'm not going to redesign every single part. I'm going to reuse many of the structural elements that I've already designed and have carryover parts, reuse the tools, reuse that investment. If my designs are radical enough in change, I limit my ability to use carryover designs. And obviously, the vehicles are going to be fresh, but I don't need every bracket in a vehicle to be fresh. And so you have to think about the economic impact on all those things. 
Um, finally, I probably won't go into this too much, um, but operating costs, I think everyone in the room is familiar with the idea of operating costs. If I can lightweight the vehicle, if I can downsize not just the body, but then all the things around it, I'll reduce fuel, I'll improve fuel economy. There's some rules of thumb of how much increased fuel economy you get. And obviously, I'm going to reduce operating costs. There also are just the government cafe requirements or in Europe, what, um, uh, emissions requirements that lead you to getting economic benefit from lightweighting that goes beyond whatever you would spend on it. So um, that was meant as food for thought to think through this kind of large assortment of costs that you have to consider, not just the fact that one material may cost less, um, but in fact the entire manufacturing scenario. Rich, thank you very much.